17, but I want to just finish up a few thoughts with Samson. Then we'll move into uh, the last section of the book. Uh, last week, we, uh, let me just, uh, maybe by way of review, we saw Samson and the Philistines. They seemed to think they could live the way they wanted to apart from the Lord and that things were going to turn out well and it didn't work out for either one of them. Even Samson was struggled with this. We saw that he was able to defeat armies of men but unable to control himself with women. So self-control and victory begins within. And uh, it, I think it's something we often relate to. The uh, you know It's one thing to do things outwardly, but if you haven't controlled flesh and if the Spirit of God is going factor that you're going to uh, have difficulty. It's sometimes the very the things that should be the easiest in some ways. We also dealt with the concept of hate in the Bible. Remember Jesus says you have to hate your mother, your father, um, that uh, if, if, if you love him, that if, the idea there is to disregard one for the other if need be. So in the case of us with Christ, we obey Christ, and if that means we have to disregard family, uh, because they uh, will not accept uh, our uh, service to the Lord, then so be it. So the hatred is not a despising, not a wishing ill will. It's being willing to disregard that. And so when God says, he, uh, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, it's that idea too, because Jacob and Esau both are under the wrath of God for sin, but God chose to save Jacob where he disregarded. He left Esau alone, that is uh, referred to as hate, but in a biblical sense. So I think those things are good and necessary for us to understand uh, when we read through scripture, we can you know what it's talked about and what it's not saying. So having looked at the tragic life of Samson, what can we say as to why this account is even part of scripture? What did Israel get out of this? What can we glean from it? Uh, I think one thing is, is the sense in which Samson illustrates uh, the nation of Israel. Remember, she was raised up out of nothing. She was gifted with riches, gifted with uh, great uh, blessings. She enters into a covenant with God. But we find that she uh, has, she struggles with loving God. She loves other lovers more than God. And, and so Samson really becomes a perfect example of Israel's spiritual condition, does he not? Uh, there, as we've seen his issue with uh, women. Did not Israel see herself, no matter what she did, as if Yahweh would always be at her disposal to get her out of trouble, uh, to give her what she wanted? Right? That, that was uh, part of the problem that rejected of Jesus because they wanted a Messiah who was going to give them whatever they wanted, take care of them no matter how they lived. Well, and of course, that was Samson's problem. Samson felt that no matter what he did, he could play around with sin, that his hair was always going to give him strength, and he finally wakes up one day and realizes that his compromise has, that the Lord has left him, right? And so, it's sad when God's people don't realize their spiritual condition. That's probably one of the most uh, obvious signs of, spirit, of spiritual problems in us when we don't recognize how needy we are before the Lord and think that we can go through life with little regard for the Word of God. We don't have to be strong in, in the Word, strong in prayer, strong in fellowship, 
with God's people, we're okay by ourselves, and it will not work out well. And so, and we saw that was the problem with the lay of the sins in Revelation 3, 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, but speaking to the church there in Laodicea. So Israel is given, uh, first of all, an opportunity to look into the mirror when it comes to Samson and to see the situation that they're in. Uh, but of course, they do not learn. Uh, next, we are given an opportunity to see the futility of fighting against God. We see this especially not only with Samson to some degree, but uh, with the Philistines, right? The last episode does this quite well, as Samson is now uh, you know, being made fun of as they tied him to the support pillars of that uh, place where they are worshiping uh, Dagon and giving him the glory for what should rightfully be the Lord's. They fail to understand that his being blind has nothing to do with his strength. They fail to notice that his hair's growing back. They prematurely give their god Dagon the credit for victory that hasn't really happened yet. They bring Samson in to make sport of him only to succeed in giving him the opportunity to destroy them. And so you see the futility of living in the darkness of sin and not in the light of God. You don't understand what's going on, what life's about and where it's headed. And so even in this, in a sense, maybe not humorous, but ironic display of idolatry where uh, the very thing that they're making fun of, thinking they have the victory, is the very thing that's going to bring about their defeat, that is Samson. Something should stir God's people when they hear the world praising someone other than the Lord, which is kind of what did with, with, with Samson. They, he heard them praising Dagon. And it irks him, and, and he, he realizes what's going on, and he asks God to give him one final victory. Of course, it, it shows how foolish it is to praise anything other than the Lord. This is the universal mandate for all creation, and certainly all men, that we are to praise him for all things, to hold him in regard, to be thankful only to him. One of the signs of idolatry in Romans 1 is being unthankful. To, to actually think that you don't own Oh God, everything. Well, it won't go unnoticed or unpunished. We're going to see this at the end of 1 Corinthians 1. So God's glory is why he has saved us. It's why we are here. If you miss that, is to stumble badly in theology and your understanding of scripture. It leads to all manner of bad theology. We'll get into a little bit of that, that point. And so, all is not lost though for in this seeming failure of man that salvation comes. So it will be in the seeming failure of a nation that out of this people represented in Samson there will be one whose death is actually going to deliver them. And so Samson ends up being that great picture of Christ who gave his life to defeat our enemy. So uh, finally we would just say that we're we might not fully understand why God uses such men, why God even uses us, but it is gracious that he does, and he does so in a way in which we see that he alone is where our strength comes from. Uh, so, just kind of finishing up these thoughts, we can see that we all, at least one more final application, is that we all have the strength of Samson. Remember, Samson's strength was not in his muscles, uh, I think, again, there's good reason to think that perhaps he really didn't look any 
all that strong because they, they wanted to know where his strength came from. So it wasn't apparent to them, obviously apparent. And, and in that it pictures us, we, our strength is not in the flesh. We might be very gifted in certain areas, but at the end of the day, either the Lord is upon us and the Lord is working through us or he's not. And so the, the preacher can be the very the most gifted preacher, but if God doesn't meet with us, then nothing's going to happen. And the same holds true. Uh, the, the preacher might not be all that gifted. As we, I've used an example not too long ago, the guy who, even his son said that when, it, when his father gets up to preach, that the men of the church got up to go to the alehouse, called the L preacher, right? And yet, God did great things through him and show that where our strength comes from. And then we must do better than Samson and know who our enemies are. Uh, Samson saw the Philistines as his enemy but did not see his flesh. His ordained sin as his enemy and he succumbed to those things. Alright, let's uh, stand and read chapter 17. We won't read chapter 18. I hope, I hope everybody has read these two chapters next week. If you have the time, read the last three chapters uh, of Judges. Um, because we definitely won't have time to read much of that. But let's just read chapter 17. It's not too long. And then we'll just kind of relate what's going on in chapter 18. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoken in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, and, and so his mother had cursed, you know, somebody stole this money, and so she placed a curse upon whoever took it, and not knowing, of course, that it was her son, and so her son hears this and thinks, Ooh, this isn't good. So uh, he confesses. And she says, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord for my hand, for my son. And here's what, then it all kind of goes south here. So she makes a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons, who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place, probably a place to serve. Remember that Levites were spread out throughout Israel at this time. I don't place here. Verse, verse 10, verse 8. Okay. Let's, let's start verse 9. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? Because he comes to the house of yeah, the country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judea, and I am going to sojourn where I might find a place. Micah said to him, Stay with me and be my father and a priest. Be to me a father and a priest, or, you know, a leader, someone I can look up to and get advice from. 
And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. The Levite was content to dwell with man and with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. They repeated. So we what we're going to see in these last two stories, accounts in uh, Judges, is the first of all the beginning of real idolatry in Israel, and then secondly, where that idolatry leads, and immorality. And so you have here just a, a story that begins badly. This is a man who thinks he's, he, he's kind of worshiping Yahweh. He, he thinks it's good luck to have a priest, a Levite priest. He had ordained his son to be priest, but now here's a real Levite. Let him be priest. He's made his own ephod, which seems to be the something that they did back then take the place of the real one, and uh, he's got his household God, so he's got everything figured out. The Lord's going to prosper me, take care of me. And it goes on, of course, in chapter 18, we won't read it, but let me just account, make it, give an account of it, that the uh, tribe of Dan uh, was looking for a place, uh, they, they were settled where Samson was, in the kind of in the middle of... Uh, to Israel near the Philistines. That's why Samson and the Philistines were uh, at odds with each other. But they, uh, we, we learned with, in Judge, with Joshua that the Danites really never drove the people out where they were given uh, to, to inherit. And so they end up here, some of them, they send five spies, as it were, to go up and search the land and try to find a place that's easier. They, they didn't want to fight for the Lord and, and to do the hard stuff. They wanted an easy place be their inheritance, and so as these guys start out, they come to this place, and they meet the, the Levite, Micah's God, evidently. They find out what's going on and uh, the arrangement that he has, and then, then they move on to go up to the, the Latish or uh, city there. Uh, that's right. I to say that city up towards the uh, very top of Israel. Um, but they go up there, they see a people that were uh, probably traded with uh, the, the Sidon, they weren't, they weren't uh, Canaanites, and uh, they were kind of isolated, but they were wealthy, they you know, they very peaceful place that they lived, so they say, hey, you know what, we can take these people, and uh, this is the easy way out, as it were. So they go back, they tell some of the Danites what's going on, so they send an army of 600 men, to go and to defeat the city so that uh, at least part of the uh, tribe can relocate. That kind of becomes Dan from then on. Uh, and as these 600 go, they come by this uh, Micah's house. They uh, the, the five original guys say, look, here's what's going on here. There's some gods here. There's a priest here. So they go in. They steal all the gods. And... Uh, uh, the priest, the Levite says, what are you doing? And they say, look, what, would you rather be, come with us to be our priest of a whole tribe or stay here for just one man? And like any good preacher who's in it for the money, he says, ding, 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 you know, I'm with you. So they steal Micah's stuff. They head out. Micah comes up later with his men, ask them what he, what's going on. And they say, hey, look, uh, you, 
better just turn back and accept this or you're going to die. And so like it doesn't mark me to leave at that point and leave them alone. They go, they kill, they slaughter this, this city uh, that was minding their own business and they kind of let that become their new um, place where the tribe relocates. And it kind of becomes, and we, we're seeing the beginning of this now with this Levite uh, priest, it becomes a center of idolatry, especially for the northern tribes after the split of Israel, a, a thorn in the flesh. So what's going on here is that we're seeing the beginning of, of real entrenched idolatry in Israel. And so in the final five chapters of the book, we have a standalone section that uh, because of a couple of verses here, it's, pretty, it's probably pretty obvious that... Uh, this takes place either during the time of Joshua or probably just after the time of Joshua. I'm not sure that Joshua would have put up with it. Uh, because, uh, first of all, in chapter 18 and verse 30, we find out that this Levi, the people of Dan, set up a carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests of the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So this Levite priest, turns out his name is Jonathan, and he is apparently the grandson of Moses. It doesn't, those, those words don't have to mean that he is literally the third from Moses, but it, it, it would sound like he probably was. So that would be one reason why this took place early on. The other one is in chapter 20, in verse 28, where we read, and Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, so again, basically, the grandson of Aaron, ministered before it is in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to do battle against our brothers of the people of Benjamin, or shall we see? So, Phineas was involved with the next account. So, it, it, it's pretty apparent that it's not that this is happening at the end of the book of Judges, but this is showing us why everything that we've read, we have read so far, has taken place because this is the condition of Israel. They are, uh, they are struggling with idolatry, and with they in, in becoming idolaters, they have lost this all sense of morality, and, and that'll be very apparent as we get into next week. So one of the reasons this, this section stands alone is because it no longer is concerned with the judges, but it has given us a spiritual look of the spiritual state of the people. So if Samson was a mirror of the type of Israel in type, as we just talked about, here is a plain look at their depravity. We're seeing the, the actual uh, things that prove where they are. All along the account, we are reminded there is no king in Israel, uh, that they are doing what is good in their own eyes. You know, it doesn't say that they're doing what's evil in their own eyes. It's not like they're deliberately doing what's wrong. It's just that they have lost all moral compass. They have forsaken the Lord and his law and are doing whatever they want to do. And so this section can be divided in a few ways. Uh, in particular, we have both of these last two sections in, in themselves have two set, set, separate sections. And so we saw it today in chapter 17, we have the account of Micah getting Jonathan the Levite to come. And then in chapter 18, we see the Danites stealing the Levite to become 
their priests. And so it begins with the personal idolatry of Micah and ends with the idolatry of a whole tribe, which becomes a snare for the entire country. And so the final three chapters deal with the natural result of idolatry, which is immorality. If you think about, for instance, Romans 1, talking about what, what happens when a society suppresses the knowledge of God, what happens? Well, it, it leads into the worst of immorality, right? The lengthy section on homosexuality. It's the result of what happens when you reject God and God rejects you. Immorality is always connected with idolatry. And we're going to see this throughout uh, Israel's history. Uh, again, first we see the personal immorality of Micah and then tribal immorality. And so, next, when we see uh, next week the murder of the Levite's concubine, uh, and, and both these accounts involve a Levite, so the Levites were, in a sense, be the spiritual leaders of the uh, nation. And so, if they are in this situation, it's no wonder that the people have followed suit, right? So we'll see the murder of a Levite's concubine and almost the annihilation of the tribe of Benjamin. And so in both cases, each section relates to each other. So if I had to guess as to why these two sections were left to the end, I would say that it is that we might see the moral and spiritual collapse of the nation and why they needed a king. But we're seeing that when people are just living, doing their own thing, uh, they fall into these situations, but they needed not just any king. They didn't need a political leader. They needed a spiritual king. They needed someone to uh, bring order to the nation, which eventually comes with David. And so, in one sense, the whole book of Judges sets up the need for a king, but that is a good king. Um, and, of course, it reminds us that we need a king, right? We, if left to our own, would be just like these people in, in the book of Judges. But when we are regenerated and given a new heart and we bow to the Lord as our Lord and Savior, now we can do better. Now, now we can do what we should do. And so everybody needs a king. And man was not created to just go out and do whatever he thinks he needs to do. And so whereas chapters 3 through 16 record Israel, uh, Israel's struggle with her external enemies, as we've seen in the book of Judges, these last five chapters uh, show Israel's struggle with internal enemies. We, we, don't, we don't read about, no longer read about these other enemies invading their land. Now we see their own struggle. We see what their idolatry brings them. We see her destroying herself as they abandon God. Also, something that's interesting about this section is that the town of Bethlehem features in each of these two stories, as well as the very next book, the book of Ruth, which is all, takes place in Bethlehem as well. Because of that, some uh, commentators refer to this as the Bethlehem Trilogy, because all three of these uh, have to do with um, Bethlehem. Uh, Micah and the Danites uh, are in Bethlehem. The, the Levite comes to Bethlehem. We'll see this in the next story as well. And so uh, they have said that, well, perhaps one reason for this is that David comes from Bethlehem. 
uh, of course. And so we're seeing in this town the setup for the coming king to see why they need a king. And we're also seeing, uh, by the time we get done with Ruth, we're seeing God getting ready to bring in someone who's going to be able to, to fix the problem, as it were. And so God undoubtedly included the story of Micah and the Danites in the sacred record because it relates the establishment of image worship in Israel. As, as we saw there, that this is something that was there until the very day that uh, Israel was carried off into captivity. So this was a new and catastrophic departure from Yahweh for the Israelites. It, it continues to grow and become an increasing snare to the Israelites from this time on. Consequently, this incident exposes the extent of spiritual apostasy, apostasy of Israel. So, outward enemies aren't mentioned here because in the end, and again, we've seen this with Samson, right? The inability of Israel to defeat those things outside the body uh, are, uh, will not work if they are not able to take care of the enemies within themselves, you know, as we see here. First, we think about spiritually, as we've said, we have to first have a new heart. We've got to have new loves, new desires, or we're ever going to be able to conquer any other sinful enemies, as it were. And so they don't recognize God as their king. Moral anarchy isn't as much of a problem as spiritual anarchy. And so the first point we made is idolatry, and then next week, the result of that idolatry. And it's good to notice that in all this, they are worshiping Yahweh outwardly. When we continue to read of them worshiping Yahweh, they have Levitical priests, supposedly, and all this kind of stuff, just not as he has commanded that they worship him. And the point is then, if you don't worship God as he has directed you to worship him, you aren't really worshiping. It is just another form of idolatry. That's something that is important that many people miss. They, they think that they can play fast and loose. I think we find that really out there in a lot of places where they have very little, they, they've made very little effort to teach the Word of God so that we can understand who God is and what He expects us to do, but yet they love to have worship services and sing about God. But, it, you know, it's kind of like the Caleb Christianity, you know, Christianity life. They, 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 they have a lot of songs about God, but they don't seem to really know much about it. And, uh, you know, and so it becomes a form of idolatry because we, we, what happens is you fashion God into an image that suits you, which is exactly what this guy has done with this Levite priest. Um, we, I have my own ephod. We, we're, having, we're not worshiping down there at the temple and tabernacle like we're supposed to. We're going to uh, have a, a God who fits our needs. And uh, so I think that's one of the things that's going on here. Can we not say that then that the first section is concerned with our love for God? And when this is askew, it leads to the second section, which is uh, what we're going to see here is that a deplorable love for the brethren. There's no love for the brethren. There's fighting and murder and rape and so forth. Because if you don't love God as you should, you're going to be completely unable to love 
your fellow man as you should. That's all. I think, again, the Bible is amazingly coherent. We see uh, obvious spiritual applications here to what happens when we get God, when we get our understanding of God wrong, our relationship with God is not right, there's no way we can have a good relationship with anybody else. And we cannot have a good relationship with ourselves. We cannot properly understand ourselves as well. If we want a modern day example, we need only to look at our own country. We have a smorgasbord of religion and even Christianized religion, but the morality is the form, right? You can't take you, you, you can take out the church directory and you can choose your own God, your own doctrine, your own lifestyle. You can find a church that, you know, promotes exactly what you want, no more, no less, as it were. And it all starts when you refuse to take God's word seriously. And, and of course, you don't take God's word seriously if you don't take God seriously. So, when I feel like God really just is there for me, take care of my needs, you know, get that K-love Christianity, then I can look for a church that uh, promotes that kind of God. That's what happens. Um, this isn't about the heathen rejecting God, but a people who once held the truth rejected. Interestingly, and yet understandably, this section is ignored by many preachers. A lot of preachers, when it comes to a section like this, said, well, you know, what a downer. I'm going to pick on Caleb, so, uh, you know, we're, Caleb, you know, every five minutes, we are positive and encouraging. That's obviously positive and encouraging. And you come to this section, you think, well, this isn't particularly positive or encouraging, so let's just skip over it. This is un- this has got some uncomfortable subjects. But sometimes that's what we need. We need to be confronted. Uh, we need to uh, be, be shown our sin. We need to be called upon to repent. We need to hear the hard things. We need to hear the convicting things. And the next section in particular is as racy as anything coming out of Hollywood. And so you can understand why there would be that temptation to, you know what, let's just get the roof. We've got a great love story over there. Let's just move over there because that's positive and, and, and we can just you know, make some good application. You know, but unlike Hollywood, this is not held up as entertainment or as something that we, that we want to be the norm. It's a warning and documentary of what the end of a life of sin is going to lead to. We're, we're, being, it's, we're being told, look, you can go your own way. You can do your own thing. You can say that God is too strict. And I don't, you know, I want to do what I want to do. But here's where you're going to end up. And so it, it's, it's, it's very needful. So it might be tempting to move on. But that in itself is idolatry. Say, so you know what? The Lord probably didn't mean for my people in the church to see that. That makes it so comfortable. So I'm just going to concentrate on the uplifting part. Is that not idolatry? Is that not saying I know better than God that that, that uh, I'm, I'm not going to do the work to figure this scene out? A gospel that doesn't cause us to look at ourselves and to shine a light in our hearts that we might do better and repent 
is a perversion of the gospel to begin with. It's interesting that no attempt, there's no attempt by the writer of this, of the book to add commentary, commentary to it. In other words, we don't read about God was unhappy with this, that he liked that, or anything like that. It's just out there. But there are certainly subtle hints to let us know how we are to read it as, for instance, two or three times we read about the fact that as, as we're going through this, that, well, there's no king in Israel, everybody was doing what they want to do. It's just letting us, reminding us why we're reading about these things. Uh, we just read in chapter 17 about words like molten and carved images and all that, which would remind us of the uh, Israel making those calves, Aaron making those calves in Israel with uh, that Mount Sinai, I remember. So there's subtle hints that let us know that this is about idolatry. And as we consider the pragmatism of the people here, we we see the heart problem. These people are doing whatever uh, they feel they need to do. His mother was a doting parent that didn't discipline both had graven images. The Levite was obviously only in it for the money. Micah stole, Dan, the type of Dan stole, Jonathan the Levite stole. They can't be much use as gods. If, you know, if, if people can steal your god away from you, it, it can't be much use as God. Right? If you can make your own god, if you can decide that this is going to be my god, is that really a god? And of course, Isaiah, You've got several chapters in Isaiah 42-48 where over and over again God says that is that is the most asinine way of thinking that you could possibly have to think that you can cut out a chunk of wood, carve it into an image, and bow down and worship it. But that's exactly what's going on here. Is it not better to have the true God, Christ, who can never be taken away from us? The mere, as soon as those guys stole... Jonathan and the God from Micah, he should have said, well, I probably made a mistake. This probably isn't uh, the true God. But he doesn't. Then the Danites are seen as weak and that they can't take the land given to them under Joshua. They look for a weak, peaceful, loving uh, people uh, who aren't even to be considered enemies, I think in all likelihood, and they slaughter them and that's what they do. And so you just see the, the, the moral decay all around in the whole town. We've also pointed out the stupidity of false religion in that our gods never deliver what false gods never deliver what they promise, which certainly is the case here. These gods did not do Micah any good. Well, let's keep in mind that it is trying to worship God on our terms that is the idolatry in view. Remember, they had not forsaken Yahweh. They just were adding all sorts of stuff to the worship of Yahweh. Perhaps it is thinking that outward form somehow pleased God. You know, we can have, you know, if I go to church, if I'm faithful to church, I'm faithful to give, if I pray well, at least once a day, perhaps if we, if the preacher has extra long serv- uh, services or if we have extra long song services, probably more likely, that it, it becomes a form of magic that, that God is pleased with our outward displays, even the things that are good. That if we say the right thing, that all of a sudden God becomes our genie to bless us. And that's what remember Jesus kind of warned against 
long, wordy prayers, thinking that you're going to somehow wear God down or manipulate Him in some way, you know, by, by wordy prayers, instead of worrying about the content of those prayers. So Micah thinks here that he, he, he made his son to be his priest, but you know, that's, you know, he's my son, it's hard to take him, maybe respect him as you ought to, to hear some of the real Levite priests, so he, uh, Fires the son and hires Jonathan. Um, Micah has itching ears, right? He finds spiritual leaders that he can control. Which is, you know, like Paul warned, don't look for, there's going to be churches out there that are going to find preachers who are going to preach what they want to hear. And if there, there, there is, it's one thing to find a preacher that preaches the truth, the doctrines that we believe are right, and we, we want a preacher who holds to those fundamental doctrines, it's quite another to look for a preacher who's going to preach whatever makes you feel good and let him go if he challenges you, right? And that's what we find here. Paul says, if an angel comes down and preaches a false gospel, it's still a false so here you got a priest who's Moses' grandson, but that doesn't mean anything. It's what he's preaching. Someone says that the Danites thought that worship was a great big blob of fat that can be molded into whatever form we want. But we find out that that's just another lie of the, in the garden, uh, warmed over, same lie as the one that Satan gave. Finally, the tragedy of this would be missed, would not be missed by a Jew reading this because Dan becomes, later on, becomes persuaded with idolatry later on. In fact, we see this over in 1st Kings. You want to turn there real quickly? Chapter 12. This is at the time of the division of the kingdom with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, remember, and so it's, we read here in 1 Kings 12, beginning in verse 25. Then Jeroboam sent, built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go out to offer sacrifices to the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, which was what they were supposed to do, that was the proper place, <clears throat> the only actual altar, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So, right and wrong, God's will had nothing to do with anything. It was saving my own skin. It was always, you know, the, the going to be the motivation. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So here is Yahweh, but it's going to be the new and improved Yahweh. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Bethel would have been down not just north of Jerusalem, the southern part of the northern tribe of Israel. Dan New tribe of Dan being up at the northern end. Then this thing became a sin for the people. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one. 
He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel and sacrifices to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made, and he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, the month in which he had devised from his own heart. Again, a connection to Judges. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. And from then on, <clears throat> kings were either compared to David, whose heart was given over to the Lord, or they were uh, compared to Jeroboam, where it would say that they did all, they caused Israel to walk in all the abominations that Jeroboam caused them to do. And here's the beginning of it. You notice how Dan has become one of the places that um, this idolatry took place. So the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. There's nothing in this account that should surprise us when we consider who's doing it. Beware of someone coming with the word of the Lord who is a slave to his flesh, whose life clearly doesn't add up. God is telling us this is not weak faith. It is saying that this is apostasy. <coughs> and <coughs> excuse me. In Second Peter and Jude, that deal specifically with false teachers. If you read that, you find out that one of the telltale marks of a false prophet, a false teacher, those who are coming into the church and leading people astray, was their inability to control. Their, not just their morality, but their physical appetites, and in particular, they were immoral. They could not control themselves, even sexually. And that's, that's a telltale mark that someone is, is not serving the Lord, but they are serving an idol. They're serving themselves in some way. Those, those things, all through Scripture, we see kind of go hand in hand. So we want to be careful of a tradition handed down to us from our fathers, if, if, if it's not according to God's word, we need to always be examining what we are doing. That lest we fall into tradition and ultimately into idolatry. Tradition isn't necessarily wrong as long as it's based on sound biblical principles. But it should never be a question of my way or God's way. You can't say it makes no difference how we worship as long as we worship. That's just because it does, and we're seeing examples of that. The difference is right and wrong, life and death, heaven and hell. And if we aren't saying that we must fear minor errors in interpretation, it doesn't mean that, you know, well, we can go off a little bit here and there, and that's okay. What we're saying here is that it matters how we approach God's word. We take it seriously. We, By the grace of God, we, we interpret it the best we can, and we obey it the best we can. And as soon as we don't take that seriously, we are going to fall into these errors. And so if you're doing something that you were taught to do, then stop if you haven't really been convinced from Scripture. If if you were raised in some tradition and you really don't know why you do it, it's just, well, we've always done it this way, and you can't, you don't have a good biblical basis for that, then I think there's a sense to which you're not, you're not, in idolatry, but you're you're at the beginning stages of it. You're you're, you're playing fast and loose, and it can lead to 
uh, worse things. <clears throat> so you and we all know in our heart if we approach the word above all else as the final authority or as a source among other sources, that second one is definitely falling into idolatry. It's comical to read Micah's sniveling complaint to the Danite soldier that you've taken my gods which I've made, you've left me with nothing. That, you see that verse 24 of chapter 18. Obviously, these gods had no power to protect him from his enemy, and that fact alone should have made it clear to him. And his pathetic question, what do I have besides, just reflects the emptiness of idolatry. Uh, if you don't have Christ, you really have nothing. And the narrator's point is that throughout the period of the judgment, the cult site at Dan functions as an apostate challenge to the true worship of Yahweh. And we will see the results of that on Billy next week. Alright? Are there any questions? Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings now upon us as we uh, move into our uh, final service, as we uh, remember, contemplate, and praise you and thank you, worship you, Lord, for what you have done uh, on this day so many years ago. We pray that you might hear our praises and they might come from a heart that is truly thankful and that, Lord, understands why these things take place because that is really the subject that we want to deal with moving forward to understand why that we don't give you empty praise but praise based on knowledge on true faith on thankfulness so we pray that you might illuminate us might edify your people that today we give you good and proper worship in Jesus name